A lot of first and second doctor stories are missing and presumed lost forever. Chip stares in horror at his computer. But between audio tapes of the original broadcast, telesnaps, and sometimes linking narration, diehard fans have brought them back. Chip nervously points at the screen. And, oh, oh, for God's sake, Alyssa, it's a slideshow! Join us as we make Chip watch his very first reconstruction. It's the Macro Terror on This Week in Time Travel. It's going to be fine, Chip. I promise. It's going to be fine. It, 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 it's, it's a slideshow. It's like, it's like watching a Microsoft Office PowerPoint. They, they, they might as well call it the Macro Terror. Now, Chip, don't be mean. Microsoft Office PowerPoints have much better slide transitions than the reconstructions <laughs> do. <laughs> yeah, a um, little later this episode, very little later, because once again, there's no news happening in the world of Chibnall. We're going to be talking about reconstructions and one in particular, the Macro Terror, because somebody made us do it. Yes, this was an award for David Adler, who donated to Who Against Guns. So thank you, David, for allowing me the opportunity to track down and watch the Macro Terror and to torture Chip by making him watch Reconstructions. My very first Reconstruction. We'll get to whether or not I survived the experience. Small bits of news, though. First up, released last Thursday, was the long-awaited, well, long-awaited, we knew about it for a couple of weeks, I think, uh, Doctor Who magazine special, In the Studio, Production Secrets from the Heart of Doctor Who. Even if you're not a regular uh, reader of DWM, this one looks really, really good. If you have any curiosity about how the show's been made uh, back in the old days to today, highly recommended. Next small bit of news, for Record Store Day on April 21st, there are going to be some new vinyl records for Doctor Who. There's going to be a audio recording of The Tomb of the Cybermen with linking narration by Fraser Hines. Uh, there's also going to be City of Death with linking narration by Lala Ward. So if you've ever wanted to get an episode of Doctor Who on a vinyl, this is your opportunity. I'm sorry. I know that there's a vinyl renaissance going on, but vinyl audio of existing stories is peak hipster to me. It is definitely peak hipster. I have to say, I'm a little surprised that they went for episodes of which there is surviving tape for. Because again, back to what we're going to discuss later on, there's plenty of episodes of Doctor Who for which the audio is the only thing that is surviving. Uh, would be kind of cool to get like big Finnish folks in on this and use the surviving audio punched up with a bit of linking narration and some special effects to put it on a vinyl. But uh, I'll just be over here in my corner with overly ambitious ideas that cost a lot of money. And last week, Future Chip told us that tickets for Gallifrey One convention sold out within 48 hours. And now that that sellout is official, the convention staff has announced of when those of us who are lucky enough to get our tickets can get into the bare-knuckled flinging elbows fight that is trying to get into the host hotel, the Los Angeles airport Marriott. 
Hotel rooms will be on sale for maybe a couple of minutes at the most at noon Pacific on May 14th. So be on Facebook to get the room code and may the odds be ever in your favor. In the meantime, we wait and we wait and we wait for news about Series 11. It's crazy. It's wonderful, but it's crazy. Just a complete absence of news about the upcoming season, uh, which is great for promoting excitement about the series when the time finally comes up. But I want to know. I want to know now. I mean, there have been some spoiler picks and discussion about uh, at least one upcoming episode that was filmed somewhere else, and I've been dying to talk about it, and you keep telling me no because it's a spoiler. Until it's officially announced by the BBC, it is considered a spoiler. We will not be tormenting our audience by talking about set recon photos unless it's like actually broken into much bigger conversation. So no, Chip, no. I'll be good. So that is what we will loosely define as the news for this week. And when we come back, we will talk about what we loosely define as an episode of Doctor Who. This week on The Incomparable Network. Panelists, including the Verity Podcast's Liz Miles, celebrate the pop culture that made a lifetime impact when they were young. It's a celebration of childhood canon on The Incomparable. I nearly got fired from this podcast. And I nearly fired myself. Due to our failings at Doctor Who Trivial Pursuit in a special game show Lazy Doctor Who crossover special just for supporting members of The Incomparable Network. And speaking of game shows and failure, Chip and I took on Liz's team for more general purpose nerdery on an amusingly antagonistic episode of Inconceivable with Dan Morin. You'll find all this and more at TheIncomparable.com. See, it wasn't so bad, was it, Chip? Uh, no, those, those game shows and trivia contests were kind of brutal, and I kind of was horrible, and I'm embarrassed to be seen in the same... Oh, 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 you were talking about the Macra Terror. Uh, or, shall we, shall we talk about this whole reconstructions business before we talk about this specific one? Sure. So, you've been doing a little bit of research into this, haven't you? Well, yeah, I mean... I gotta admit, I have a bit of a mental block. Uh, loads of Doctor Who fans know more about Reconstructions than I do. You know more about this stuff than I do. I sort of held recons at arm's length for the longest time because I'm picky. I'm a little OCD. I I want to see TV stories. I don't want to see things that are not TV stories, even if they no longer exist at TV stories. It's just, it felt too much like a half measure. I guess I am a perfectionist. God help me. For me, I don't really view the reconstructions as episodes of TV, but more as a sort of archival cobbled together thing. It, to me, is fascinating to try to see how people preserve these stories in whatever way they possibly can because of the unfortunate circumstances that led to us losing so many of these stories. So you had the BBC with all of these tapes of these old Doctor Who stories, and eventually it just came down to an issue of space and cost of upkeep. And so they erased a lot of the old stories. Now, a lot of what survives 
today is a result of sheer dumb luck. You have stories that were sent abroad for distribution, and sometimes those international offices kept the copies of those tapes. So sleuths have been able to track those down and recover those episodes for us. Uh, you also have sometimes clips of the stories that have been saved due to either they were featured on Blue Peter or local censors removed those clips from the episodes because they were considered too violent for their own audiences. And so those clips have survived, which is where some of the surviving footage from the Macro Terror comes from. It was an Australian censor who felt that a clearly fake crab claw reaching out was just too violent. That was just too much for any of us. And then you also had fans at the time recording and keeping what they could of the stories. There's a lot of fan audio that has been saved of people hooking up their microphones and actually being able to record the audio from the TV story. And for them, it was just a way to sort of relive it later. And then now it survives as basically, you know, the one of the few ways that we can uh, listen to these stories and have any sort of preservation of what they were like after the fact. You also have uh, a man named John Kira who took telesnaps, um, which is special photos of the episodes as they were broadcast on the screen. So think like very old school screenshotting. This was setting up a camera to look at a television screen and snap images. And the whole story behind his process is fascinating and too long to discuss here. But he was a professional that was capturing these telesnaps for actors and directors and producers and media productions and basically anyone who would pay him. This would be stuff that people could use for their reels, for self-promotion, for the BBC to be able to advertise the episodes. Uh, the unfortunate thing is not a lot of his telesnaps, uh, not all of them at least, are free for us today because some of the later Doctor Who producers after Verity Lambert didn't hire him to provide telesnaps of their stories. The BBC didn't always save the telesnaps that they got. And then after he passed away, his wife offered the telesnaps to the BBC. They refused, and then she burned them all. So what we have remaining is what people have been able to find from secondary sources. So there's several episodes of Doctor Who for which there is basically no visual record left of it. There were no telesnaps. There was no, they have not discovered the episodes anywhere in existence. So it would be impossible to do a reconstruction like what we see with the Macra Terror. But this was one of the lucky episodes for which uh, audio and some visual record of the episode has survived. And so they cobbled it together into what we see today. So that's pretty much the definition of a reconstruction. Uh, it's, it's when a recovered soundtrack and these telesnaps love each other very, very much. Oh, the number one producer of recons is Loose Cannon Productions, uh, founded by Rick Brindell, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, in 1997. Taking fan audio, taking the telesnaps, taking the clips that the censors left over, whatever, and putting it all together in sync and it's almost like watching an episode. It's certainly in sync. Um, 
the Macro was the first one that Loose Cannon did. They did it in 1997, and I believe they redid it in 2006 with a couple of articles of VAM. You know, they interviewed the poor guy who bought it in episode three uh, after uh, trying to tell everybody the truth about the Macra. This was my very first recon, and it wasn't as painful as I expected. Oh, look at you, Chip. You made it. <laughs> Sorry, it, was that too patronizing? <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Okay, it's not <laughs> literally my first experience with uh, recons, if you count uh, episode three of The Web of Fear, because uh, somewhere along the way, uh, they thought they'd recovered all of The Web of Fear, but they didn't recover the one that included the debut of the brigadier so on that dvd and in the digital stuff that one is a reconstruction based on still photography and all that stuff but we'll get to the story the merits of the story itself in a bit but uh this was the first time i'd spent any amount of any serious amount of time with uh the tardis team of ben polly and jamie and that wasn't a bad combination and watching it the watching it the way loose cannon did it with limited graphical effects you know when when gas is going into a room they uh overlay a little bit of smoke they do seamlessly morph the pictures into what little existing footage remains so when polly is being attacked by one of these evil censorious crabs in episode two you know it's that bright light comes on and you're like oh wow this must be what it looks like and that helps all of these succeeding still photos just sort of merge together in your mind. And it, it you're right. It's not like watching the TV show, but it does. I do actually recommend watching Reconstructions, and it is it is surprisingly enjoyable. Yeah. You know, like I said, you just got to change your perspective of when you're going into it. If you're going into it expecting to watch an episode of Doctor Who, even an old episode of Doctor Who, uh, you're probably going to be disappointed. If you view it as a way to see what survives as sort of a little bit of an adventure on its own, and you're very aware of what it is that you're getting into, it's a perfectly enjoyable way just to understand the story a little bit more. So this was my first time watching the Macro Terra reconstruction. I had watched all of the surviving clips on a separate DVD, which compiled all of the surviving clips of Doctor Who um, that uh, didn't have enough remaining material to make it into a full episode or story of Doctor Who. That was so, the uh, Lost in Time set, right? Yeah, that's the Lost in Time set. So I, I have a quick interjecting question. Yes. Where do you put it on your uh, DVD shelf? I do not own it because I borrowed it from a friend. But if I put it on a DVD shelf, I'd put it at the end where all of my box sets are kept or what you like to refer to as the wrong method of sorting my DVD shelf. And we're not having this argument in front of the listeners. Okay, Chip. <laughs> So I knew what I was getting into a bit. I knew what the story was going to be like. I had watched those clips and then I had read a synopsis of the episode, but it was still fun to see the reconstruction and to see the telesnaps and get a bit of a visual record of what some of that story must have looked like. Mm -hmm. The techniques that they do are, first of all, they use the actual audio. They don't use any of the BBC audio 
later releases that added linking narration or anything like that. Uh, This is the straight-up audio from the television from the 1960s. When it is unclear what's going on during the story, if the telesnaps don't capture important stuff, there is a caption that appears on the bottom of the screen that is very, very helpful. Every once in a while, the caption tells you exactly what you are currently seeing, as in, you know, Ben is looking a little upset. Yes, Ben is looking a little upset in the picture. Other than that, they're really well-timed and uh, very helpful. So what did you think of the story overall, Chip? I keep being surprised whenever I see a new Patrick Troughton story. I keep being surprised at how well they hold up as as drama. The combination of the TARDIS team and Mind Robber, the Macra Terror, War Games. You know, as I'm getting more and more into Patrick Troughton's stories... I haven't had too many of the base under siege stories at this point. So I am getting a fair bit of narrative structure and stories that are about things. And 1984 was published in 1948. So this is is an episode that's about 20 years – that was produced about 20 years roughly after the book 1984 came out. And this story uses science fiction to – say something very, very strongly about authoritarianism, about gaslighting, about emotional manipulation and all these other things that I think are remarkably relevant today. Our friends over at uh, Doctor Who the Writer's Room just got through doing an episode about some Seventh Doctor stories, including the Happiness Patrol, that sort of covers some of this similar ground. But the Second Doctor did it. And did it pretty darn well very, very early in his run. I really do think that, you know, there may be some weird stuff going on with pacing. And I'm kind of glad that this is a reconstruction because the macro would have been pants in full video, even the few seconds that we get from surviving clips. But I thought it was kind of creepy, kind of scary and kind of brilliant. Yeah, your connection to the Happiness Patrol was something that I made. And I think Happiness Patrol and uh, Macro Terror suffer a little bit from villains who don't entirely make sense. The Candyman in the Happiness Patrol is something that still throws me for a loop a little bit. Uh, not just because of the way the Candyman looks, but like trying to understand the structure of that, how that works in society. Like it's one of those where the political point that they are trying to make sometimes overwhelms good storytelling, where you're trying to understand how this type of villain could have come to power and exactly what sway they hold over the society. You know, the the macro themselves, it's a very interesting idea because the sort of story that I pulled from it, and I'm not entirely sure I was intended to, is that they arrive on this planet, they begin drilling, and they're uncovering this gas, and then the local population of aliens start exploiting the colony to be able to dig up more of this gas that they need to survive. And I can't tell entirely if there's supposed to be some sort of colonialism parable there, but there's also this other thing of it's not entirely clear how sentient the macra are because the most that they're used, you know, you never see them really speaking. You never see them in very limited 
context doing anything other than menacing people who come near them. And yet they're supposed to have infiltrated this sophisticated colony, held the controller hostage, and used that in order to create a fascist society built on mind control and hypnosis to get the local population to provide them the resources that they need. Uh, you know, one of the things I thought about was the use of the macra in gridlock, that 10th doctor story, uh, one of the, the second Martha story, actually. And I get now why the macra were mostly invisible in that story of maybe it was a meta reference to the fact that we don't really get to see the macra because so much of it is lost. Maybe it was, oh, shoot, these things don't actually look really great and we don't have the best CGI technology available to us. Let's just do giant claws reaching out because that's the only <laughs> thing we really need to do for these creatures. But in Gridlock, they just seem sort of like parasites that show up where noxious fumes are being spewed, not as a genius, devious, sentient race that is able to enslave an entire population to its needs. Yeah. So it's 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 a very interesting story, and one of the few classic Who stories where I kind of want to go. You almost need another episode here, like oh no, let's- oh no, oh no, no, Alyssa, please no. <laughs> But, like, I want to know more about the mechanics of how the society worked. Like, how on earth do these bugs take over and hypnotize an entire colony to be able to provide for their needs? Like, I need a little bit less chasing people through abandoned structures and a little bit more building into how do bugs take over the world? (laughs) I did get the sense that at least the macra who was pretending to be controlled. Um, I did get the sense, we'll call that one, I don't know, Daddy Macra. Um, no, we won't. I veto. We are not calling it Daddy Macra. Macra Daddy? Um, no, that's worse. And anyway, uh, Macra Prime. Call it Macra Prime. <laughs> I'm not. Did- I did get the sense that at least that one was uh, sentient and in control. I dimly recall in Gridlock, the doctor commenting that the macra seemed to have devolved and were just little gaseous clack 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 pincer dudes what gaseous clack 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 pincer dudes i am a professional communicator i am very (laughs) articulate uh so i i didn't i i didn't feel like i was missing um i you're you're probably right that the story would have benefited from a little explanation of how these crab creatures infiltrated. The doctor certainly acts like he doesn't have a complete sense of how it happened, but he's pretty much like, I don't need to know. We just need to stop this thing. You're right. It works better thematically than logically. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. As I was looking through that this episode through the lens of current politics, however, you know, I kept I kept ascribing Twitter personalities to characters like Ola and Control. You know, Control. The image of Control is totally a Russian bot. Okay, Chip. I've never said this to anyone before, but maybe you need to step away from Twitter for a little bit. Um, and, you know, and Ola might as well have been speaking in hashtags, that's for sure. Uh, Ola's communication was pretty much limited to that anyways. But there is definitely that sort of groupthink happening um, where 
nobody's sort of willing to confront uh, quite how dangerous their authoritative beliefs are. There's a very much an interest on presenting happiness uh, and trust rather than doing what is best for the community. Yeah. One of the things that I was really interested in, and again, it's another situation where the logic sort of fails, but I like where it leads us. Ben, Polly, and Jamie are gassed in their sleep in an attempt to bring them under the macro's control and to make them all happy, go lucky, and compliant. For some reason, we don't see the doctor in his quarters getting gassed or whatever. He just sort of shows up in the nick of time to rescue Polly. So he he stops the gas attack on Polly, and she comes to herself pretty quickly. Uh, in their quarters, Ben and Jamie get gassed, and for some reason, Jamie has no problem really resisting, and Ben just sort of succumbs. And Ben's story arc through the macro terror is trying to overcome the effects of brainwashing and occasionally betraying his friends and occasionally resisting. And that was sort of fun to watch, but I kept being left with questions like, is is it just because Ben's a sailor and is used to a hierarchy of control and Jamie's a Scottish rebel or something like that? Or is there, is there something inherent to these characters that made them turn out differently in this story? Never explained, but in the end, Ben and Jamie have very different stories and are off doing very different things. Polly is somewhat reduced to being the doctor's assistant, and that's not great, but Ian Stewart Black did put a little effort into making Jamie and Ben distinctive characters in this story. Yeah, I can't quite tell if it's necessary, you know, what exactly it is. I think part of it comes down to they have a lot of companions at this point. Like, that's a lot of people uh, to have around. And I believe this is very early in his run. And there's there's just too many characters and there's too much to be doing at that point. You sort of at either point get one of these characters sort of shoved aside because there's really not enough for all three of them to be doing at that moment, especially when so much of the action needs to be taken up by the doctor. You know, this isn't late Hartnell where the companions need to carry the show. This is early Troughton. He's making his mark. He is active. He's involved. He is doing the physical action uh, as well as the plot action. So to have him doing that, and then also Ben, and also Jamie, and also Polly, there's not enough for all three of them to be sort of actively involved in the plot and of uncovering things that are happening. There's not a lot of physical action that all three of them can carry. So it's uncomfortable. But this is also one where I can't point to anything other than the general sidelining of Polly as being something gender based. It's just there's there's too many cooks. There's too many cooks, and by necessity, some of them are going to get pushed aside. Yeah. Uh, the doctor, he's so good. He's so, he's so he good. Is. He's so sly. He is – I'm sorry that video does not exist of the great clothes pressing. Uh, yes. And the great, and the great <laughs> hair styling. That gag must have been really, really funny um, in, in video, and it is kind of lost in the translation or, or reconstruction. 
Yeah, this is basically, you know, I wouldn't say peak Troughton because I definitely have episodes that are more my favorite than this one. Uh, but this is just sort of classic perfect Troughton. He's in equal turns silly and clever and just he's in his element up against authority figures and questioning everything they do. So overall, this is this is pretty a pretty great story for Patrick Troughton. A really good way for him to start making his mark and defining what kind of doctor he is going to be. Yeah. And a really good job by Loose Ken Productions in making the most of the available material. And I would absolutely prefer to experience the Macaratera this way than to listen to audio only with linking narration. This is just Doctor Who is a visual medium, except when it's not, except when Biddick Finish does it. But, you know, they are doing it for audio drama. There's too much that we need visual assistance with in this story. And having Conlon Baker or Annika Wills just sort of helicopter in for explanation uh, in between lines of dialogue is just much less enjoyable to me than um, actually seeing this. So thank you, David H. Adler, and thank you, Alyssa Frankie, for forcing me to experience a reconstruction. I feel better. I feel enlightened. I feel ennobled by the experience. Remember this the next time I demand that you watch another reconstruction. Well, if you want to watch a reconstruction and you haven't seen one before, they all live, for the moment anyway, at the video website Daily Motion. Just search for <laughs> just search for Loose Cannon Productions and Daily Motion on Google, and you will find, I believe, every last one of the reconstructions that Loose Cannon did, including their value-added material with interviews and such. So check that out. I can now attest that they're not as scary as I thought. Thank you for joining us for This Week in Time Travel. You can find us online at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're also on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek, and Chip is on Twitter at numeral 2 minute time Lord. I Twitter and Tumble at Whovian Feminism. You can find us on Facebook, too. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our theme music and to David J. Lore for our podcast artwork. We will see you next week when I am quite confident that Chris Chibnall will unleash a flood of Doctor Who news, right? Keep dreaming, Chip. Damn it. Next time on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.